Welcome again, everyone, to the Richard Roper podcast. Thanks to everybody who's been uh, downloading and subscribing and all that good stuff. We're going to talk uh, today about the 25th anniversary of a little movie called Titanic, which actually was released a little more than 25 years ago, but they're doing a whole big re-release and we've got some fun stuff to talk about in regards to that. And I've got reviews for you of a bounty, a myriad, if you will, of new streaming series and films coming out. But first, here's your reminder. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing. You know about this stuff. All of that will help drive your overall business's success because they believe, say it with me, Today's online world is your online opportunity. Don't don't say it with me. I just, I don't know. You know, you listen to me and that'll be good enough. Thanks to everybody at AmericanEagle.com and their beautiful studios and their support uh, over the last couple of years. Okay, Titanic, uh, released in 1997, late 1997. But as I'm recording this, we're in February of 2023, a little bit more than 25 years after the initial release, but they are re-releasing the remastered version to celebrate the 25th anniversary, Paramount Pictures, playing on screens for a limited time, starting Friday, February 10th, and then playing for uh, at least a few weeks. They re-released the film in 2012, and it earned tens of millions of dollars. And then in 2017, Titanic hit the big screens once more for the celebration of its 20th anniversary. All of that continuing to add to its box office, even adjusted for inflation and all that stuff we get into. It's still one of the biggest hits of all time. And it's interesting because when Titanic came out, obviously it was a huge hit, and it won a shitload of Academy Awards 11 to this day. Uh, made more than $2 billion, and there was this sort of backlash. I mean, it it got generally favorable reviews, and then it became very hip to slam Titanic, uh, this obviously melodramatic script and the length. And then there was kind of a renaissance where people went back and said, yeah, but you know, you say what you want about it. And James Cameron, not always his own best PR. You know, folks, the, the uh, I'm the king of the world speech at the Oscars and just his overall arrogance, you know, what a shock. A visionary filmmaker has a huge ego. He's the only one in Hollywood like that, folks. I don't know the guy, but yeah, sometimes he, you know, he comes across as not the warmest, cuddliest uh, uh, filmmaker. Who gives a shit? I don't really care about stuff like that. As long as he treats people on sets okay. Again, that's up to the people that worked with him. But there was this sort of, you know, uh, backlash against Titanic, and now you know it, it's getting its due. And I will say this: having recently rewatched it. Folks, uh, yeah, first of all, you know, the dialogue sometimes is unspeakably corny, uh, but it is still one of the most impressive visual accomplishments in motion picture history. And when you think that this was 25 years ago, the combination of practical effects and special effects is unbelievably good. And as you probably have read through the years, you know, they did this almost near size titanic ship that they put together and the attention to detail and when you watch it especially you know we're about an hour and 40 minutes into that movie i think before you know the titanic hits the the iceberg and and from that point on it is just an amazing adventure and the performances look at leonardo dicaprio and kate winslet were just starting off 
you know, they're movie stars in the making. It's the story is Romeo and Juliet on a big ship, guys. Let's face it, you know, and they they combine the actual history of Titanic with, you know, purely fictional uh, characters. Neither uh, Jack nor Rose were real people aboard the Titanic. A lot of the other characters are based on real life people. It's an incredible film. And I remember when, when the movie came out, I saw it at press screening. And then I went back a few weeks later to watch it, basically to watch the crowd reaction uh, at a theater in downtown Chicago to the movie. And I do remember that uh, for the last hour or so, you could not hear, you could not hear anything other than the movie. There were no sounds in the theater. Of course, it's a better time in terms of seeing movies just because there were no fucking cell phones. So nobody was texting, but people were not getting out of their seats. People were just absolutely mesmerized by what was happening on the big screen, which is another kind of interesting thing about Titanic guys in that it came out in December of 97. It was number one. It was number one for, hold on. I want to get this number right for you guys. It was number one for 17 straight weeks and still in the top 10, six months after premiering. And this was back in the day when there would be about a one year window between theatrical release and then films coming out either on VHS or it was starting to be DVDs. When it came out on home video, it was still playing in theaters, played in theaters for over a year and was still making, you know, 25, 26 million dollars deep deep into its run which you'll just never see uh, as i'm recording this uh m night Shyamalan's knock at the cabin has supplanted uh avatar the way of water directed by james cameron this is the number one film and you know, avatar the way of water had a pretty good run several weeks at number one but you're never going to see a film have 17 straight weeks at number one at the box office because of the nature of the business we now have a window of 30 days 45 days sometimes two weeks sometimes you know simultaneous day and date releases so there's never going to be this period where films exclusively going to be in theaters like titanic was so that's that's a record that's never going to be broken the staying power of titanic is what made it a two billion dollar hit the word of mouth the fact that people wanted to keep seeing it over and over again on the big screen. So, you know, this re-release will do very well. There's going to be a lot of people. First of all, there's a new generation that's only seen it maybe on home video. Uh, we'll want to see it on the big screen. And then I'm sure there's some folks that are going to say, you know, I I have special memories. I took a date that became my spouse uh, to, to the original Titanic. A couple other things about the film. There's a, a National Geographic special called Titanic 25 Years Later that you can check out. It's it's airing now. It's really interesting because it's it's James Cameron with his kind of participation as a producer. Uh, they revisit some of the uh, controversies, if you will, about Titanic and some of the debates. Uh, let's take a listen to James Cameron in the National Geographic special. So now let's do the real test. Let's put them through a simulation of all the things that Jack and Rose went through. So we did exactly what, what they did in the movie, except that we doubled the time for every stage of it because our water wasn't as cold. Going into 28 degree water, and that just makes you gasp. And that's the cold shock. It accelerates the heart rate, constricts blood vessels, so your blood pressure goes up immediately. And the faster your heart's beating, the faster that cooling blood from your arms and legs is coming into your core taking your temperature down so i was really curious to see what that did to jack's situation and it's pretty interesting what we saw was that he got up on there 
and he immediately went into the really strong, shaking, shivering, right? So there's been this debate for 25 years. Should Rose have made room for Jack on, it's not a door, actually. It's like a kind of a, a bed frame, but it's a piece of floating debris, right? And there have been, you know, even Mythbusters addressed it at one point. And a lot of people are saying, you know, if she had let him, you know, have a, there was room on that piece of debris for both of them. Uh, and they actually go after this in a scientific manner in the National Geographic Special. They go to this uh, this tank in New Zealand with these scientists who study hypothermia and body temperature and all this stuff. And they hired two stunt actors who I hope were paid a lot of money. I hope they were paid a lot of money. They hired two stunt actors who were the same size as DiCaprio and Winslet at the time. And then they have them in 28 degree water trying different things. What if they're kneeling and facing each other on that piece of debris? What if they both keep just the, their upper core above water and they're both underwater? What if they take Rose's life jacket and put it under the, the, the piece of debris? That was one theory that was out there. Well, life jacket's not meant to hold up two bodies. It's meant to keep your head above water. So the buoyancy there is kind of negligible. And all these different types of solutions. And in a lot of scenarios, if Jack had been allowed to join Rose on the, on the piece of debris, they both would have died. That was a scientific conclusion, although Cameron does finally say, all right, I probably should have made that big ship raft a little smaller. I would also like to point out the fact that this is a piece of fiction, folks. And uh, Jack has to die for that romance to have the impact it has. If they both survived, we're going to then get a follow-up where they move to Wisconsin or California or whatever. And there's going to be a day where they both look at each other and say, what have we done? What exactly? We had a fling on a ship. Now we're stuck with each other. So, I mean, it, it's one of the reasons why the story resonates is because Jack isn't going to do anything to endanger Rose's potential rescue. So he's going to die, literally die for her. It's the most romantic thing in the world. That's another reason why he can't climb up on the raft, okay? I also want to mention one of my favorite scenes actually is early on. That's the poker scene. Five card draw. That's when Jack and Fabrizio are playing Sven and Olaf in five card draw. Let's take a listen. All right. Moment of truth. Somebody's life's about to change. Fabrizio? Niente. Niente. Olaf? Nothing. Sven? Uh oh. Two pair. I'm sorry, Fabrizio. Get sorry, mama fanculo. Do you bet the other I'm sorry. You're not going to see your mom again for a long time. Time. Cause we're going to America. Full house, boys. No. I'm going home. I'm going home. I go to America. No, mate. Titanic go to America in five minutes. So, of course, that's how Jack and his best uh, buddy Fabrizio end up getting two tickets in third class aboard the RMS Titanic. And uh, Sven and Olaf are left behind. It's interesting because Sven and Olaf are also the names of characters in Frozen. But the Sven and Olaf in Titanic didn't get frozen because they lost in the game of five-card draw. The two pair bested by Jack's full house. So uh, there's a moment where they're running to the ship where where uh, Jack and Fabrizio are running to the ship and and Jack says, you know, we're the we're the luckiest sons of bitches in the world, he says. And I always thought it'd be a great like SNL sketch if they just so showed Sven and Olaf a few days later 
at the same pub and getting a look at the newspaper and seeing the Titanic sunk and realized that that was the best bad beat they've ever had in their life because they lost the poker game, but they won in the game of life. They survive. And their uh, opponents, spoiler alert, do not. Anyway, there's tons of great stuff out there about Titanic. You can go to suntimes.com. You can see some of my other uh, observations about some anachronisms in the movie, some you know factual things that don't add up. But as I point out in the piece as well, listen, it's a movie. It's a three-hour-plus movie. It's historical drama. You're going to have a few continuity errors or things talked about that hadn't happened yet in real life. Uh, the overall takeaway is that Titanic is one of the biggest hits of all time and won all those Oscars for a reason. It deserves to be celebrated. If you get a chance to see it in the theater, if it's playing somewhere near you, I urge you to check out the re-release, uh, remastered, beautifully done on the widest screen imaginable. All right, why don't we take a break? Rokan will tell you about Portillo's and then we'll talk about stuff playing right now. I think it is time to tell you about Portillo's. Okay. The greatest single fast casual cuisine experience you're going to have anywhere on the planet Earth. Right down to the poppy seed bun. You're going to enjoy it so much because it's one of the million great ingredients that Portillo's uses. Whether it's the Italian beef or the sausage or the legendary chocolate cake. That's just all the beginning. Mm -hmm. The fries, the salads, the chicken telling you, if you have Portillo's... The burger. It, the burger's great. Yes. And, and you can get beer at the Portillo's, too, if you go nice. into the store. Nice. I'm just going to tell you right now. If you have a Portillo's near you and you've not eaten at a Portillo's before, let's say you live in California, Arizona, or Florida, where it's relatively new, you want to check it out. Take the Row and Roper endorsement here. It's one of the finest experiences you're going to have ever in that kind of a food environment like fast casual you know it's not exactly fast food you can sit down it's nicer but it's super great portillos.com p-o-r-t-i-l-l-o-s.com ask your friends in chicago about it portillos.com why are you in london i'm gonna put on a show at this famous theater People are numb, disconnected. We're going to wake them up with a wave of passion they've never felt before. Hell yeah. Without further ado, I give you the visionary artist's magic mind. Wait, I know you. You were a cop, right? Did you arrest her? What's your name? Kim. Let you off with a warning, right? Okay, Magic Mike has uh, returned to the big screen in Magic Mike's Last Dance. This is the third Magic Mike film. Uh, they're saying this is the end of it, although there's talk about spinoff characters. And the first Magic Mike, when it came out in 2012, it was Steven Soderbergh directing. So I was kind of interested from that standpoint. As you probably know, it was loosely, the story is loosely based on Channing Tatum's own experiences when he was an exotic dancer, a stripper in Tampa when he was like 18 years old. And then Magic Mike turned out to be a whole lot more fun than it had any right to be, folks. I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, let's face it. The guys were amazing in an era, and this era remains where it's usually about the male gaze on the female body. This was a refreshing change of pace. All these great-looking guys doing these, and Tanning Tatum can you know dance the shit out of those numbers. It was sexy. It was funny. 
And there was a lot going on, actually, in Magic Mike, because it's Soderbergh, you know, so he wasn't just going to tell the story of a male stripper. So, you know, Mike uh, had that on again, off again thing with uh, Joanna, who was played by Olivia Munn. Then he meets Cody Horns Brooke, and maybe there's a relationship there. He's the mentor to Alex Pettifer's The Kid. He's a protege of Mike's. And then you've got Matthew McConaughey, who actually had a lot of fun playing off his all right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. And he's playing a guy named Dallas, and there's some intrigue with Dallas. So there's actually a lot going on in the story of Magic Mike. Then they did um, Magic Mike XXL three or four years later, and that was pretty much kind of a dopey, undercooked sequel. Now, you know, Mike is making this shitty designer furniture. Then he gets the band back together, and he refashions them into these new dance routines, and a you know, we kind of proved that we probably got everything we needed to know about Magic Mike the first time around. But now we get Magic Mike's last dance, um, a decade plus after the original. And um, it's a batshit crazy movie. I can tell you guys that. It's not good. I'm giving it two stars. Uh, Janning Tatum, now 42, still looks amazing, still has the moves. And at the beginning of the story, he's a bartender because he lost his business during the pandemic. Then uh, Sama Hayek is this rich businesswoman who hires him to do one dance. He's bartending at this fundraiser she's hosting. He does one dance. They end up in bed. Next thing you know, she's telling him, let's go to London and you can help me refashion this old fashioned stage play into a male stripper review. I'm not kidding you. And that's where it goes off the rails completely. Uh, the last third of the movie basically is this extended series of dance numbers in this formerly, you know, stayed traditional British theater. Now all these dudes are are stripping and while telling a story, and it's it's insanely stupid, even for a Magic Mike movie. Uh, and the love story between these two wonderful actors—you don't buy it for a second. They don't even know each other. Next thing you know, they're supposedly falling in love. Magic Mike's last dance, I hope, was a promise and not a threat. It should be his last dance. Also want to mention uh, somebody that I used to know. This is Dave Franco directing along with his partner in real life, Allison Brie. Can't recommend this one either, folks. This is a retread of a movie called My Best Friend's Wedding from years ago where Julia Roberts is in love with the groom. He's going to marry the younger woman who's played by Cami Diaz, and she tries to sabotage the wedding. I always had my pro problems with My Best Friend's Wedding because Julia Roberts is the villain, no matter how they sliced it. Uh, so in this version, I mean, they're not calling it a remake, but they even reference the movie at one point. Alison Breeze Alley is a workaholic TV producer. She goes back to her small town hometown and learns that her long ago boyfriend is getting married and she tries to sabotage it. And it has some of the same problems that uh, my best friend's wedding had is that it doesn't make her likable and we don't believe in her growth. Somebody that used to know it's okay but it's kind of unnecessary, which is the same thing we could say about 80 for Brady now playing in theaters. And I'm not surprised it, it did fairly well in its opening weekend because it's kind of comfort viewing for older viewers. This is the story, of course, uh, based on the real life story of these elderly fans of the Patriots and in particular Tom Brady, and they make the journey to the 2017 Super Bowl. Now the cast is amazing. You got Rita Marino, you got Jane Fonda, you got Lily Tomlin, you got Sally Field, I mean, you know, playing these these older gals, and it's great to see them on screen. It's just too bad they didn't have a better vehicle. I mean, the story is stretched super thin. It knows nothing about football for a movie that's produced by Tom Brady's company and features a cameo by Tom Brady and cameos by some of the other uh, Patriots players. And I will say this, 
I haven't seen the geographic uh, breakdown, but I can imagine that this movie is not playing well in Atlanta because the 2017 Super Bowl, guys, is the one in which the Falcons were up 28 to three before the Patriots uh, pulled off one of the greatest comebacks in uh, postseason history in any sport. I don't know if they want to relive that. 80 for Brady. Even for such a light and frothy film, I can't recommend it. It's just too dopey and should know it's football better than it does. Now, on the positive side, let's take a listen to a clip from Knock at the Cabin. We're not here to hurt you, but you have to stay here in the cabin with us. Families throughout history have been chosen to make this decision. Your family must choose to willingly sacrifice one of the three of you to prevent the apocalypse. We're not sacrificing anyone. For every no you give us, hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. You have to somehow trust us. We're normal people just like you. It doesn't matter. None of us believe you. We will never choose anyone. I'm afraid the rule is that no one's allowed to leave until you choose. So this is the latest from M. Night Shyamalan, who made a few small films before having this incredible breakthrough in the late 90s, early 2000s uh, with The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable in Signs. It's an incredible trilogy of films. The next thing you know, he's on the cover of magazines. People are talking about him as the next Spielberg. They're great films. If he had never done anything else, all three of those films are brilliant. And all three, of course, have you know the, the twist endings for which Knight became uh, famous and then sort of infamous. Since then, it's been kind of an up and down career. Some great stuff like Split. Then we had the very disappointing sequel to Unbreakable. People uh, really had you know negative reactions to uh, films like Lady in the Water and The Happening. I'm still a fan of M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, and while this one is a big swing that doesn't always connect, I think it's a return to form. The premise here is pretty incredible. There's a a young girl and her parents. They're uh, vacationing at a remote cabin in the woods. And then these four armed strangers show up, led, led by Dave Bautista, who's playing a Chicago school teacher, playing a little bit against type. And they tell them that this core family, the two dads and the daughter, that one of them must kill somebody else in the family. If they don't, if they don't make this unthinkable sacrifice, millions upon millions of people will die in signs of the apocalypse. And of course, that sounds like these people are crazy and they're in a cult, but what if they're telling the truth? And it just goes from there. And I, I found it to be well-crafted, terrific script, good performances. And yeah, you got to go with it at one point or another, like you do with most of M. Night Shyamalan's film, but Knock at the Cabin, getting generally good reviews, doing well at the box office. It's good to see a return to form there. Speaking of cults, now this is this is heavy stuff because guys, this is a real life story. Uh, there's a new Hulu documentary series called Stolen Youth, Inside the Cult at Sarah Lawrence. You might remember this story from uh, several years ago. Or a guy named Larry Ray, who was this con artist who had this whole concocted history where he was a military guy and he was an international player and this great leader. Uh, he moves in with his daughter, he gets out of prison, moves in with his daughter and her friends in their kind of dorm housing off campus, just off campus at Sarah Lawrence, and then proceeds to take over their lives, many of them. Uh, manipulating them, abusing them, tormenting them, brainwashing them. 
And I can tell you, it's not an easy documentary series to stay with because this guy recorded uh, a lot of his sessions, his, his abuse of these college students. And then when they're out of school, either audio or in some cases video, and it's tough to watch, but it's also, it's eventually inspiring for those who kind of escaped his clutches. And this guy, spoiler alert, it's real life. He's in prison for life where he deserves to be. And your heart aches for these people because I think when most of us hear and, and read and see documentaries about cults, we think, well, I would never let that happen to me. But, you know, we're talking about college kids and, and we see in some cases some really bright and they're not naive. They're, they're fairly sophisticated young people, but they get caught up in this and they get broken down just like, you know, prisoners do in, in times of war where there's all sorts of torture and different means to get them to question their own memories and their own beliefs and to make confessions of things they had never done. So it, it's a fascinating look inside that psychological abuse. It's called Stolen Youth Inside the Cult at Sarah Lawrence, but it is one of the best uh, documentary series of the young year. They called it the Sarah Lawrence bubble. It feels like its own little world. They were trying to attract the kind of students who were outcasts in high school. We were all really open to possibilities. Talia, who lived in the house, said, hey guys, this is my dad. He just looked like a dad. Talia characterized her dad as a hero. He was in the CIA doing psyops. He was practically James Bond. He unveils to us his philosophy called Quest for Potential. I started to believe what he told me about me. He said to me, I'm building an army. I want you to know something. I love you very much. All right, guys, that'll do it for this edition of The Richard Roper Show. As always, thanks to everybody who's been listening, and we'll get back to you with some fresh stuff soon.